History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is The King Midas of Pop Music. I think several times throughout the episodes we've we've done already, we've talked briefly here and there, especially I think in, in our like personal intro about playing musical instruments in high school. But I honestly don't know that we've ever discussed our taste in music, like what types of music we listen to on a daily basis. And given that our topic for today is a titan in the music industry, I figured we'd start off with a brief kind of casual conversation about what kind of music we like to listen to. <laughs> So what what do you have on your like daily or weekly playlists? You know, I think this kind of goes along with how bad I am with pop culture. Like we've talked about um, how I don't really watch movies. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's just a pop culture thing for me that like, I like music, but I'm not like one mm-hmm. of those people that, I don't know, music defines me or, you know, any of that, any of that right. kind of stuff. So I don't have any like huge... I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of any particular mainstream pop music or anything like that, I guess. Um, so anytime there's like today's hits that are on, like I recognize the songs, but mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you any of the singers or anything like that. Or sometimes we'll be in the car and Rita will listen to uh, the local pop station and right. I'll be like, oh, I've never heard this song before. She's like, what do you mean? It plays seven times a day. And I'm like, uh, I don't listen to the radio anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I was like that before I had Spotify. Like, I listened to the radio and I would know the song, but I didn't n- know a lot about the artist unless it was a song I really liked. Um, it Like, when I had... It probably started, I, I suppose, with iTunes and, like, the iPod. But once I had a device to listen to music on, I got much more interested and knowledgeable, I guess, about popular music. I feel like I did used to listen to the radio more. I mean, I had older cars that... I would listen to a CD if it had a CD player. And then right. when I bought my car that I drive now, like it didn't have a CD drive in it. So I either listen to the radio or I just listen to the stuff through my phone, which I couldn't do on my older cars. So now I really like, this is going to be cliche saying it now, but I mostly listen to podcasts while I'm driving. Cause I just get tired of listening yeah. to the same music all the time. But I mean, I do listen to music and I think a lot of people's taste in music has to do with, the way you grew up and like the, the culture that you grew up in or the, the people, your friends and stuff like that. So I do of I course listen to a lot of like Christian radio stations because that's what my, my family always grew up in on family road trips sure. and stuff like that. Um, I do like jazz a lot and that has to do with us being in school. Like, and that's not one that I can necessarily tell you who the artist is all the time, but I, I just right. enjoy the style of music and the creativity that goes into it. I will stumble upon songs even now that I'm like, Oh, we played that in high school and I completely yeah. forgot about it. <laughs> like the other day, what was I listening to? Oh, oh, I was making a playlist for We got my dad Spotify for father's day. So we made a couple of playlists and one of the suggested songs was Asia by Steely Dan. And I was like, Oh my God, I forgot <laughs> this song existed. And like, it was fun to listen to it and kind of go back and, 
sometimes when I'm at work, I'll hear the uh, the house sound that's constantly playing just whatever music, the same songs every single day. Oh, yeah. And then there'll be randomly something on by like Steely Dan, and I'll just be like, oh my gosh, I only know <laughs> Steely Dan because of band. And yeah, they're so recognizable. Like now I'll, I can hear any song by Steely Dan. I know instantly that it's them just because we've been, I guess having music education was a good thing to like be more open to other types of music that you wouldn't necessarily right. hear on the radio. Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely a, a really positive thing to have the, I don't know, to be exposed, I guess, to so many different types of Mm-hmm. music and different artists and bands um, i will say though when it comes to listening to popular music i do tend to and i know this is kind of leading in early to our main topic but i do tend to listen to a lot of the stuff that i remember when we were younger and not even mm-hmm. necessarily like as kids but the music that was popular when we were in high school was feels like a throwback now and it's like when i right. go on i don't know amazon music because that i don't have spotify or whatever but it'll be um typically like 2000s or 90s music that i try to listen to yeah i mean i definitely have my fair share of 90s and 2000s (laughs) i feel like a lot of people and maybe it's because we're like the latter half or the latter tip i guess of the millennial generation but i feel like so many people in our quote-unquote age group are really like into the 90s and frankly like there's certain things from the 90s that i really like can get nostalgic about but I was no older than eight <laughs> right. at any point in the 90s. So it's like, how much can I really, you know, how much can I be nostalgic for eight and under? See, what's funny is you know when, what I mean? when I think about <laughs> 90s music that I remember as a kid, it is like the boy man type stuff because I had older mm-hmm. sisters. Like my sure. oldest sister, Lindsay, is four years older than me. So when I was eight in 1999 2000 like she was 12 and she was listening to the backstreet boys or in sync or whoever right. was popular at the time so like that's the kind of music that i remember hearing in the car when i was a kid and now that i guess is my view of the 90s music which is not right. a very good way to remember the 90s music because they definitely probably had better music than that at least in other well, genres I, mean, I think they did but i think that's where we like we i think a lot of people say oh i like that like vintage 90s music but i've even had arguments with people that insist that like fallout boy is 90s music and it isn't like (laughs) i remember clearly being in seventh grade on the football bus listening to sugar we're going down and it was like a year after it came out so i was like i know for a fact that like that song is mid 2000s so i think it's funny how we just kind of clump it all together part of that i think though is when we think of decades it's not yeah necessarily confined within the 91 to 99 or whatever like right. decades are tend to be lagging by like four or five years so when we think of the 90s we're really thinking of like 1995 through 2004 right so to move beyond i guess the genre conversation is there like an inherent quality that you think makes music good and i'll, I'll kind of explain this question a little better with I guess, an argumentative example. And that's that I've heard people argue about certain types of genres or songs or bands or types of music that certain are better or worse. And I mean, the the two that I can pick out immediately is actually having heard people argue about it are country and hip hop. You know, I've heard people have the argument about like, is hip hop, you know, quote unquote, true music is country, true music. And I don't know why either one would not be considered that, but 
either way, I guess what I'm saying is I've heard these arguments and I guess I want to get your take on what, I mean, what qualifies as good, good music? What makes music better than other music? Well, I, I guess it's funny that when you said that my thought went to hip hop and country, <laughs> not to like criticize them, but I feel like those are the two that typically get called out as like, oh, I hate rap or I hate country music. Right. And I don't know, I guess in my perspective, for me to enjoy music, I'm open to most genres of music. Like, there's not really anything that I couldn't find talent or enjoyment is, but it's really like that talent is what sticks out to me. Like, you can hear, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the easiest thing to explain in words, but like, you can hear certain music and know that it takes a lot of skill. And I think growing up, I didn't necessarily recognize that in hip hop, rap, certain other genres of music. But like, now that I try to listen a little bit closer when I'm listening to music. There's a lot of the lyrics that I necessarily don't enjoy or don't (laughs) agree with all the time, but like you can recognize that there is a lot of talent, a lot of skill in what goes to making that kind of music. So it's, it's just, I guess an appeal type thing. Like it's not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And that's why I like, I don't know. I, on a principle basis, I disagree with arguing about whether or not a type of music should be considered I don't know, music, quality, whatever. Like, as far as I'm concerned, anything that sounds good, even if it's like a bird song, can be considered music. So I just kind of wanted to get your take on that. Well, there's people that say the same thing about like jazz music is that right? you and I might really enjoy jazz because we, we had at least a somewhat music background and we can understand like the intricacies of the, the music and the melodies and that makes it more interesting to us. But like someone who never played music or never... Right grew up in it would hear jazz music and think like this is just sound thrown together and it just doesn't sound very good and isn't appealing to me and i've also noticed like not to get rambly i guess but i think there's two types of people when it comes to listening to music there's people that listen to the lyrics and people that just listen to the music that's absolutely true and your enjoyment of a genre kind of depends on which of those people that you are yeah no my i mean my dad's definitely like he has no idea what songs are about he says he doesn't listen to lyrics. He's like, I don't know what they say. <laughs> and you could say, like, the songs that you like, you could hear them be like, yeah, I know all the words. Well, you know all the words when you're listening to the song because it's easy to, like, follow along, kind of mumble and mouth along yeah. with it. But take away the music and you can't say the lyrics to it at all because it just doesn't make sense right. necessarily. So before we get on to uh, our, our more, I guess, informational <laughs> portion of our episode, I have one last one last kind of fun question I want to ask, and that is, is there a band or artist that you would consider your guilty pleasure? And what I mean by that is, is there a band or artist that you love to listen to on a regular basis that you wouldn't <laughs> readily admit that you love to listen to? Uh, and I'm I'm going to give mine, just so you're not put on the spot. You're going first? It's up to you. I mean, I kind of feel like I've already said mine. I don't. I guess I don't have any that are like I would be ashamed to admit that I listen to any particular music. Right. Maybe when I was younger, but like I think it's just the the whole. I grew up thinking the Backstreet Boys were cool because my sisters listened to them in the car, and like that's what I remember from my childhood. So, right. You know when a when a Backstreet Boys song comes on when I'm listening to my late '90s, early 2000s playlist, like it's kind of cool. I'm into it. That works. They're in our episode, as is. My personal guilty pleasure, which I feel like isn't going to surprise you that much, but it's Taylor Swift. Oh, like yeah. I know people, I know people hate her. I do, and I I don't agree with it, but I understand 
why she's hated sometimes. Because a lot of artists are hated on for the same reason, but <laughs> Adele. At but, some point or another, Rita referred to Taylor Swift as her girl crush. I don't know if that's still the case, but she at some point has said that to me. <laughs> See, here's the th- like, she just, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about it, but I think she's a good songwriter. She's got a clear arc to her music. Like, it hasn't stayed the same. It's evolved. I think she's a really wonderful businesswoman and and marketing creator. I don't know if that makes any sense. And I'm sure she has a whole team that makes her that, but I don't know. She's definitely one of those artists that like people love to hate on, but I'm like, I, I don't know. I like her music. You definitely know more about a lot of artists and their backgrounds and backstories than I do, which is why like this is your topic and not mine. Cause <laughs> you're definitely gonna be the more knowledgeable one when it comes to music. Our topic for today is going to be Max Martin. The extremely prolific record producer of the 90s and 2000s and 2010s. But before we get into his story, I want to talk briefly about what a record producer does, because it is kind of a, not middleman, but jack of all trades, kind of confusing position within the music industry that doesn't really have clear boundaries. So, I mean, to start off, I think many people, including myself, initially naturally start out thinking that the artist we're listening to and that we hear singing the song is the one who wrote it. You know, you hear, you know, Taylor Swift singing a song. We assume she wrote the song. If you hear a Drake song, you assume Drake wrote the song, you know, and, and for a lot of bands and artists, that is the case. You know, the Beatles wrote their songs. And I think the producer is the, the Beatles had a producer. In fact, we're going to talk about him, but I think it's kind of this weird position that can take or give up a lot of control depending on the type of band they're working in. But I think it's important to mention that in some circles, people actually look down upon artists who are publicly outed as using ghostwriters or somebody who wrote their lyrics or assisted to write their lyrics that wasn't them. And that's particularly prevalent in the hip hop community, but it definitely happens. And I think it's, I mean, it's a bit silly given that almost all artists work with producers. So do you have any examples of artists that like got busted for it or like, you know, maybe weren't, I think lost some credibility when people found out that they weren't writing their yeah. own songs. I think the big one people would name would be Drake. Like the one that everybody would know would be Drake. I mean, there's been other artists that have put out digs at him for having a ghostwriter in songs, but that it's, it's hard to describe because within the hip hop genre, there's just a different set of rules, I guess. That's like a big no-no in the hip-hop genre. Whereas like pop music, everybody has a ghostwriter. Everybody's like, there's six people writing songs. <laughs> so I don't, I mean, it's definitely not as big a deal in other genres, which is why I think he got tattooed for it so badly. But where I land, at least in my opinion, is that it takes talent and creativity and expression to just take the notes and the words and put them into sound like you don't need to write it to be an artist you know what i mean and like i said the truth is there's often an entire group of people involved in the creation of a song or album you know it's not just the band that brings the talent it can be dozens of studio musicians it can be recording engineers it can be the producers it can be i don't even know record executives that want the album to sound a certain way so it'll sell better um so there can be an entire team of people working on a single song it's the same with our podcast. We have people that do all yeah. of our research for us, write out exactly what we're going to talk about, and then 
you know, do, set up all the recording equipment, and then we just talk for a little bit, and then we have someone else who edits it and does all the stuff. And no, just kidding. We do all of that. We do all of the work. <laughs> we need a team. We should. We should hire a team for free. Like, don't, don't they have like free interns these days? That's another thing. Yeah, but you have to like be able to actually teach them something and I don't um, know. Something about college credit. We're wise. We're older ish. Yeah, they'll learn about history. We have life experience to give them. <laughs> so we have this individual called the record producer and basically in one sentence their job is to strive to help the artist or the project reach its full potential and so they they can act like i said there's a lot of give and take depending on their role but they can act in a really broad conceptual way just kind of guiding this artistic work in a certain direction but many times they can also have much more direct specific influence such as our topic today or many record producers who actually get involved with lyric writing or specific instru- instrumentation and things like that. And oftentimes record producers are also singers, musicians, songwriters, audio engineers, or a combination of the above. And later on, I mentioned a, a couple of famous engineers, but the fact is like Beyonce is a record producer. Jay-Z's a record producer. He's just his own oftentimes. So it's not really a role that is exclusive and it's not like if you're a record producer you're not this other thing you can kind of wear different hats depending on what you're doing and i think the best way to kind of think about this role with fuzzy lines is like a digital age composer you know they're the one that assists in writing a piece and they have an idea of how it's supposed to sound and they can play it out on the piano but then they're also able to transcribe the piano piece into a more full sound with different instruments, sort of like an orchestra composer Mm. would. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. In general, producers are less well-known than the artists they work with. But like I said, in hip hop, they hold a more prominent role. And in, in pop, they have started to hold a more prominent role. And so we know names like Dr. Dre and Timbaland and Pharrell Williams, who are examples of producers that are arguably more famous than some of the artists in their lineup. Wait, so I'm going to out myself as dumb here. <laughs> is Timbaland an actual person? Yeah, yeah, he's a producer. I don't know if, I don't know his full name. I'm not <laughs> sure, like, I'm sure he has a name that isn't Timbaland, but... I swear... Um, Timothy I, Zachary Mosley. Like I said, I'm Timbaland. dumb and don't know pop culture. I always thought Timbaland was, like, Justin Timberlake's band or something. Like, it was, like, a play on his name No, I to You know be... what? Like, I don't think that's that dumb. I think that's, like... An easy slip up because they did. I mean, didn't they have Timberland a hit and Justin with him Timberlake? Or something? Okay, several. They worked together yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So I think I always just thought like it's Justin Timberlake and the guys with him are Timbaland, but yeah. clearly like the entire not right. I think it's called Future Sex Slash Love Sounds. It's a Justin Timberlake album. The yeah, entire that, thing was produced Timberlake by Timberland. Thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so and then he's one of the examples. Like. He worked, not only did he work with Justin Timberlake, but he was really prolific working with Missy Elliott, Nas, Jay-Z, Drake, Rihanna, and One Republic. Pharrell Williams was, you know, first made famous as part of the kind of R&B-esque production band, The Neptunes. And they did a lot of work with like early Jay-Z. They did some stuff for Justin Timberlake as well, as well as Nelly and Snoop Dogg. I didn't realize Pharrell was a producer i just know him from his song happy like i thought he was just a singer right well that's like i said sometimes they go in and out of different roles 
And I think the quintessential one would be Dr. Dre, who was initially the DJ for NWA and then went on to produce for Snoop Dogg, Tupac, Warren G, Eminem, and most recently uh, artists like Kendrick Lamar. And he's the one that I think has kind of built the producer brand more than most. So is it typical for artists to work with different producers? Because you mentioned Justin Timberlake was with Timbaland and Pharrell, but... Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I mean, I think it's it, when you break it down, it's just an artistic endeavor. And if you think about it, like if we were all musicians, like sometimes, you know, I might work on something with you and, you know, then I'd go, I don't know, do an art, do do an album with Rita, the producer. And like, I think they all kind of know each other and different producers have different sounds. So artists kind of bounce between them depending on what sound they're looking for and what kind of vibe they want. But there's also producers that people just like working with. Our topic today, Max Martin, was preferred by Britney Spears because she let, she enjoyed working with him. She enjoyed making music with him. Hmm. So that that's kind of a good, I think, overview of the role that a record producer plays um, just to give you some backdrop against which to put Max Martin. Um, and we will get to his early life and career in just a couple minutes but first we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back wait don't skip this isn't the same buy me a coffee ad you've heard a thousand times yeah we know you're sick of listening to the same ads week after week we are too and that's why we don't use buy me a coffee anymore but seriously we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, welcome back. So I talked a little bit about what a record producer does in the production of an album or a song. Um, and now we'll get into Max Martin's early life and the beginning of his career. Wait, so this whole thing wasn't just an intro to talk about Polly Murray? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That's our other episode yeah. where I talk about Max Martin for the entire intro. <laughs> our dedicated listeners will remember the name from a few episodes ago. Actually, yeah, quite a few episodes ago where we yeah, decided Max Martin would be a good fit for our podcast. And here he is. <laughs> so he wasn't always named Max Martin. He was born Carl Martin Sandberg. On February 26, 1971, in Stenhamra, Stockholm County, Sweden. As a child, he was a student of Sweden's public music education program, and once said in an interview that he had this education to thank for everything. So he kind of throws it back to Sweden's 
public education to kind of attributing his success to his education with the music program there. Is this a shot at uh, Ohio and American schools that are cutting music education out of their public schools? I have no knowledge. I don't know what this was like. Maybe it was like really primitive and worse than America somehow. But if it's really intense and offered him the opportunities, I am a little bit salty. (laughs) Not that like, I feel like I was probably afforded a better music education than most American kids. So I can't really complain, but I think it'd be cool to have a really like focused program. As a teenager, Martin sang in several different bands before joining a glam metal rock band called It's Alive. What is glam metal rock? (laughs) So glam metal, or as it's sometimes called hair metal, is kind of that 80s, real dressed up, real flamboyant style of metal, like Motley Crue or Def Leppard, the ones that wore like the leather suits and the fake wigs. (laughs) Okay. Um, Poison is another one. Was he just so a that's, singer, I mean, or did he play an instrument? Yeah, he was just a singer at that point. I imagine he played an instrument too. I it, there was no specific indication of what instrument he played, but I would find it hard to believe he would know as much as he did about music theory and music composition, and also be as prolific of a writer if he couldn't at least play the piano. Hmm. Like he he works with synthesizers, so I have to imagine he at least has. Yeah. Some piano skills. At least taught himself, maybe. Yeah. Eventually, he dropped out of high school to pursue a music career with this band under the nickname Martin White. The band had moderate success, playing a spot at the National Rock Championships in Sweden and landing a spot as the house band at a disco in Cyprus. Which, like, sounds pretty crazy for a high school band. <laughs> I, I mean, I get that they're in Sweden and not America, so Cyprus isn't as far, but, like, I played dumps. Like... <laughs> dive bars in the worst neighborhoods when i was in high school not discos in cyprus i mean i think you have a very promising future in front of you matt but you are also not (laughs) max martin that's fair you just gotta practice a little bit more yeah that's it and get to a disco in cyprus (laughs) exactly Eventually, the band landed an offer to make a demo tape with Mega Rock Records, a Swedish heavy metal record label. They were then offered a record deal by producer Dennis Pop's label, Kieran Records. And though the band fell flat of its expectations, Pop recognized Sandberg's talent for writing and producing and invited him to work for the label as his protege, renaming him Max Martin. Kieran, with Martin on board, produced a string of successful Swedish pop acts through the early 1990s. This kind of gave Martin his start producing pop music commercially. In 1995, Kieran Studios was hired to work on a self-titled debut album for the new American boy band, the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Martin helped... <laughs> this is his first here big it break. Is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a throwback for us, but he was here. Uh, and Martin helped to write the singles Quit Playing Games With My Heart, As Long As You Love Me, and Everybody Backstreet's Back. <laughs> Which, I mean, most people would know those, at least at our age, if they heard them. I don't know that I... I'm super familiar with the first two, but the third I certainly know. I actually think I remember the first two. They definitely weren't like their bigger hits, but those all sound yeah. at least familiar to me. Probably a good point to say here. I know we're like, I don't know, pretty close to a half hour into the episode, if not there yet. But um, this is definitely going to be a throwback episode for people who are around our age. <laughs> like, yeah. This isn't the traditional history that we've talked about a lot up to this point on our podcast, but 
clearly this is a b-sider guy and uh yeah he's probably the most recent huh the most recent b-sider we've had yeah for sure i mean we've talked about our living b-siders and we have helga meyer and at the time that we recorded it uh michael collins but Mm. this would only be our third and really second living b-sider dang so he's a he's a youngin Definitely the most recent story too. I mean, yeah. it's, so still, I mean, it's a part not, of our lives. <laughs> this isn't ancient history. This is history most people listening to this will be able to remember. But shaping not culture. All people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Three years after the commercial success of Backstreet's first album, Dennis Pop died of cancer, leaving Martin to take over as director of Kieran Studios. During this time, he worked with platinum artist Jessica Folker on her debut album and co-wrote and produced three songs on Celine Dion's One Heart album. I mean, this is kind of crazy. Like, a couple years into his career as a producer for this label, he's already working with Celine Dion. Like, I feel like I feel like I made it just from having done yeah. that. <laughs> Later that year, Martin wrote and co-produced Baby One More Time, the debut single for pop star Britney Spears from the album of the same name. And I think we all can hear this one. Interestingly enough, this single was originally offered to both the Backstreet Boys and TLC and both passed on it. So it went to Britney Spears. And it's crazy in my mind to try to imagine either one of them to sing. I'm trying to the picture song, the Backstreet just... Boys singing it cuz you'd have to change some lyrics around a little bit probably. But a little bit, I think. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to be dumb again. Who is TLC? TLC was a R&B group in the 90s. It was three women. They were oh. I mean, they were a pop pop r&b group i have no memory I think, of no that. scrubs don't go chasing waterfalls i don't know if you've heard oh that song. oh okay yeah that's yeah that's one of those that's like TLC. i know the song but if you made me guess the artist i never would have got it yeah by 1999 baby one more time had sold 15 million copies worldwide and within a year would double that number making it the most successful lp by a teenager britney spears in history how old was she when this came out? She was born in December of 81, so she would have been 18 going on 19. Oh, wow. I guess I didn't realize out. how young so she was. Really when, young. Yeah, when she yeah. first kind of hit stardom. Yeah, she was a kid. This is unrelated to the episode, but did you watch any of that Britney Spears documentary that was like really big a couple weeks ago? I didn't. I like This is months I, in the past for our listeners, but... <laughs> I meant to, but like, honestly, I've watched so many, like, this is what really happened documentary since the beginning of the pandemic that like, I can't anymore. I just, my brain is full of the truth about things. (laughs) Is that where the idea for our podcast came from? The the truth (laughs) documentaries you've been watching? Yeah. So I did not watch it. No, I didn't either. I I mean, I heard it was like, I don't know, a lot of big stuff and she kind of got screwed out of a lot, but. Um, I'm sure I really didn't follow it too closely. I kind of feel that way about most younger pop stars. Like I just don't buy that. They know fully what they're getting into. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's just not many people. I don't think personally that there's that many people in the entertainment industry in New York or LA that are like truly looking out for these people. 
these young pop stars that aren't just trying to make money off of them. And I think that just leads to a bad dynamic. It baffles me with like professional athletes when they're like, this guy just signed a $300 million contract and he's 26. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's an adult, but he's also two years younger than me. And I can't imagine signing a $300 million contract to do anything (laughs) at my age. Well, just think like, I don't know. I try to think about the little things here and there in like daily life that trip some people up and like cause problems. And then you think about like Britney Spears or Justin Bieber is a good one on the other side of the aisle. Like, that I think just got overwhelmed really with mm-hmm. everything that that their careers meant. And you're just not ready for it at that age. I wouldn't have been ready. I'm right. not ready for it now. Good <laughs> Lord. <laughs> so I kind of get like when people ha- like not just, I don't know, have an issue or a mental health problem, but also get taken advantage of at the same time. Like, yeah, for sure. I don't know. It's unfortunate. Anyway, tangent over. <laughs> So the success of this album, Baby One More Time, actually made Martin the first non-American in history to win ASCAP's Songwriter of the Year Award in 1999. And ASCAP stands for the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And it's one of the two major entities that legally protects and represents songwriters and composers. And the other one would be BMI. And Britney Spears was actually quoted as saying... Martin gets exactly what I am saying when I tell him what I want and what I don't want musically. His melodies are incredible, and he is always coming up with weird sounds, which I love. There's nobody I feel more comfortable collaborating with in the studio. So he was clearly a favorite of hers, um, and we'll see more about how involved he was in, in creating the music that he helped create. Martin followed up this success by writing and co-producing seven out of 12 songs on Backstreet's third album, Millennium, including mega-hit I Want It That Way, which was voted number 10 on MTV Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Pop Songs list, which I buy. I think it, I don't know about number 10, that seems a bit low to me. Like This was probably my how... favorite song when I was a kid. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying <laughs> no, it doesn't no, deserve I'm to not... be on that list. I'm not waiting for you to defend it like i'm not offended by you saying that i'm just like that's the one song i remember like really liking by the backstreet boys when i was little you are my fire (laughs) i feel like it's so good if you had to ask me to name one backstreet boys song that was definitely written in the 90s i would have said that one but wouldn't their millennium album be the one that came out in 2000 because it's called millennium it came i think it came out in 1999 oh okay but let me double check that. I don't know. That just seems like one of the older hits that would have made them famous. But I guess yeah. it probably wasn't even like one of their first like first songs, really. It was released in 1999. Okay. May. See? So it's, I mean, it is a... I would have said it was a thousand, a 2000 song if I had to guess. But it's weird. That like the millennium switchover doesn't feel like it happens sometimes when you're listening to music. It's just a big gray area. We were young. It's fine. Yeah. So this album actually sold for 1.1 million copies in its first week. And it helped Martin again win the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 2000 and 2001. So 1999 through 2001, Martin wins Songwriter of the Year. And so he's He's got a pretty decent, I think, start to his career. (laughs) He's probably already made a pile of money, but he's not done yet. Following the death of Dennis Pop, 
Kieran Studios eventually closed in 2000, and Martin, along with producer Tom Taloma, opened Maritone Studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Maritone produced three tracks for Britney Spears' third studio album before collaborating with Kelly Clarkson to create her hits Since You've Been Gone and Behind These Hazel Eyes in 2005. <laughs> These are definitely songs I remember from my sisters. Yeah. Martin also worked with Pink on a string of albums and hits throughout the 2000s and 2010s, including her hits Raise Your Glass and So What. In 2010, Martin produced Usher's hit DJ Got Us Fallen In Love, and two years later co-wrote and produced his album Looking For Myself, which went platinum. During the same prolific period, he worked with pop stars Avril Lavigne, Jesse J, Katy Perry, and Christina Aguilera, producing hits such as Jesse J's Domino and Katy Perry's Hot and Cold and California Girls. So, I mean, he's just kind of like knocking them back, like number one hits that you hear on the radio constantly. And it's weird, like, if you're a, a listener, just go on Google and type in Max Martin song list and just read through them because it's incredible. Like, it almost feels like he's just the one writing the, the radio songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, So when you're saying he produced these songs, does that mean that he wrote the lyrics to them? Not necessarily. When I say he wrote or co-wrote, it means that, usually. Um, produced is is certainly more the music production side of it, where he probably had much more... I think he probably had an idea of what the lyrics should be about or what type of singer he wanted. And he was even known for, you know, writing a song first and having an idea of what artist's voice he wanted to use okay. on the song. So I guess the, the answer is a little bit of both, but I, I mean, I, I, de I definitely think he had a, a fair hand in the lyrics as well. Okay. But it, again, like I said, it, it depends on the credit. Like if I, like I said, if I say co-wrote, he had a hand in the lyrics. If not, I wouldn't be so confident. Yeah. There's just a distinction between wrote and produced. Right. Exactly. In addition to working with this long list of stars, he also worked with my aforementioned guilty pleasure, Taylor Swift for several of her top hits, including I knew you were trouble. We are never getting back together in 22. On her 2014 album, 1989, Martin co-wrote and co-produced Shake It Off, Blank Space, Bad Blood, Wildest Dreams, and Style, wow. um, which were pretty much all the singles off the album, and many <laughs> yeah. of them were on the billboards for weeks. And he co-wrote and produced eight of the songs on her 2017 album, Reputation. What's crazy to me, just here, like, ignore every other artist. If you listen to I Knew You Were Trouble, Shake It Off, and then any of the songs on Reputation, they're completely different sounds. Like, yeah, and it's one of those things like people say in researching him, there are certain people that say, like, if you get deep enough into his music, if you're a record producer, somebody that worked for one of these companies at the time and like knew these songs really, really well, you could hear his influence. But it's also kind of hard to hear because he just does so many different things. And and he had eras too, like clearly the nine like in the late 90s backstreet boys britney spears sound is way different than what he would be doing yeah. for pink or justin timberlake or whatever so do you have any idea how he got into contact with all these different artists like or do they contact him to produce i think by them? this point i mean by now and i think by probably the mid 2000s people were contacting him i think once he hit it big with backstreet and then britney spears 
he was getting the phone calls. Um, but I, I mean, I imagine that's how his his studio is just well known enough to to have these artists seek him out. Okay. And I suppose like once you make so many, you just get more popular. Like, right? Yeah. You know, he's he's written songs for Britney Spears, Kelly Clarkson, Backstreet, Usher, and Justin Timberlake, and Taylor Swift, and they've all been in the top fifty. Hey, you want to have a top hit and get famous and make some money? Go talk to Max Martin. Right. He's like kind of one of those almost career makers. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. In 2016, speaking of Justin Timberlake, in 2016, after Can't Stop the Feeling was featured on the film Trolls, Martin and Justin Timberlake were nominated for their first Academy Award for Best Original Song. He's also worked extensively, most recently, with Ariana Grande on her second and third studio albums, working on the hits Problem, Break Free, Side to Side, and Into You. And he also co-wrote the singles from her 2019 album, Thank You Next, No Tears Left to Cry, and Break Up With Your Boyfriend. He also worked closely with The Weeknd on hits such as I Can't Feel My Face and Blinding Lights. So he's still active, right? Like, he's still producing music? Yeah. Wow. Yep. <laughs> Makes yeah, you he's kind of wonder what's coming next. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure he'll have more. We'll wait for him to tell us what songs we're so, going to like. I tried to avoid getting too rambly with this list cuz like I said, you can look up a very lengthy long list of all of his hits and credits. But I kind of wanted to just give a brief idea to give you the effect of seeing how prolific and widespread his his artistry is. But I do want to talk a little bit about his kind of creative process and his legacy. So in interviews, Martin has cited ABBA, Prince, Kiss, and Lasse Holm as his musical inspirations. I'm going to be totally honest and ignorant and tell you that I don't know who that fourth one is. Lasse Holm. I have to go listen to Lasse Holm? Do you? Of course. No, you do. He's the greatest Swedish, Swedish pop star of all time. Did you look him up? No, I have no idea who that is. I'm really hoping he's actually Swedish. I'm going to hate you if he's Swedish. I'm, I mean, he sounds Swedish. So, yep, Swedish composer. Okay, so he's a composer. That's what I meant. There we go. All right. Now we all know. So, like I said at the beginning of the episode, traditionally an artist would write the song and then look to a producer for help polishing and shaping the sound into a finished product. Kieran and Max Martin worked the other way around. Producers wrote, played, recorded, and engineered the music, with artists being brought in only towards the end just to add the vocals. And like I said, when he was writing these songs, he kind of had an idea of how he wanted them to sound, which would narrow down who you wanted to be on the song. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. In fact, on Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again, Martin and his team had already written and layered tracks for several songs before she arrived. And it only took her a week to lay down the vocals. So is that pretty much how all of his hits were made? I don't know. I don't think I wouldn't say that exactly is how all of them were made. Because I imagine every artist is a bit more particular or different um, about how they like to work. I I mean, I imagine if somebody like Justin Timberlake really wanted to be involved, he'd be involved. It's hard (laughs) to imagine any of these like superstars taking a backseat and letting someone else craft their product for them i guess well and then and that kind of gives you an idea of how respected he is and how trusted he is with these these songs like i mean almost like major stars that process makes it seem like the artist isn't significant like he 
he could have gotten anyone yeah. to sing one of these songs for him because he knows how he wants it performed and the music is already done and like he's just like oh well let's get so and so to sing the song and then they do and instantly it's a hit like right. <laughs> he could have made you famous what? I think it's a little bit of like give and take. I agree. I think he could have taken any number of people and probably worked them into fame. But I think, like I said, I think he does truly care about the artists he works with and has like, I think he, when he writes a song, he's like, this is a song for Taylor Swift or I don't well, know, a Taylor Swift kind of what's cool about it too, is that like <laughs> every one of these artists are very distinct and their songs have distinct sounds. Right. And if he's, writing the lyrics or producing the music or whatever especially to the point where it's pretty much done before the artist arrives like he's got like i don't know just a a sense for these artist sounds before they're even there performing it yeah yeah for sure and i mean he's every time it says co-produced he worked with the artist like right yeah i mean there's lots of these artists that i'm sure had a hand in writing the entire song with him um but I think it's his his attention to detail that really sets him apart. He explained in the LA Times, I want to be a part of every note, every single moment going on in the studio. I want nothing forgotten, nothing missed. I'm a perfectionist. The producer should decide what kind of music is being made, what it's going to sound like, all of it. The why, the when, the how. And I kind of like, I get that in some degree, but I also think it's a little bit control freaky. Like, I, th- I mean, that's oh, how you, I guess, produce great art is to be obsessed, right? But I don't know. I, this is where he starts to border up on, like, what you were saying, where I would feel a little bit, like, taken aback at how little control I got to have <laughs> when working with him. You know what I mean? Are there other producers that work that way? Like, they do the song first and bring the artist on later? I'm sure. I'm certain of it. I don't know that there's any producer that, like, exclusively works this way. Um the little I know about, I mean, the thing is, it's like, I think for every producer, it's a little bit of both. Like Pharrell has his own sound. Dr. Dre has his own sound. And so you can either be Dr. Dre and have this sound and then sell it to artists that work with that sound, or you can be the artist and look for a producer like Dr. Dre. So I think it's a little bit of both. You know, it's, I guess, just kind of like a marketplace of creativity. So you can go to who you want to go work with to get a specific sound out of them. Hmm. But I think it's also worth noting the after effects that he's had on other producers, including a cluster of talented Swedish producers known for working off of Martin's style, uh, including names such as Savin Kocha, Dr. Luke, and Shellback, all of whom have experienced pretty decent commercial success. Dr. Luke was actually featured in an article that was titled, If Dr. Luke is Luke Skywalker, Max Martin is Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Over the course of his career, Martin has co-written or written 24 Billboard Hot 100 number one singles, which incredibly, I think, makes him the songwriter with the third most number one hits behind John Lennon with 26 and Paul McCartney with 32. And with for more Beatles connections, as a producer, he has the second most Billboard number one singles behind George Martin, who is known as the fifth Beatle and was the producer for all of their studio albums. <laughs> So on one hand, it's, I guess I kind of get why he has a little bit of an advantage. Like all the songs that John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote that they got credit for, they performed, they were their songs, they recorded them, they were the band, right? So it's a little bit limited in terms of like how many they can pump out. Whereas he's working with all these different artists, 
but still he's written that many songs that yeah i mean you were pop hits like that limited like, in your time to right write and produce all these songs regardless of who the artist is well and what's insane to me i guess like i feel like this guy just has it figured out right like i i feel like the worst thing about being i don't know an actor or a famous musician would be the fame it'd be super inconvenient it'd be a constant pain he that like doesn't really have to deal with that like <laughs> i feel like most people don't know his name and he's sitting third and fourth behind three Beatles, <laughs> you know? So like, I feel like that's not a bad place to be. He and, enjoys the B side. Yeah. But it turns out it's, it's not a bad place to be financially either. It's estimated that Martin charges about a hundred thousand dollars per song for his effort. His single sales were tallied by the Hollywood reporter in 2013 and topped 135 million. And in 2017, his personal estimated net worth was about $260 million. I feel like $100,000 for a song is cheap. Like, knowing that the chance that you have to yeah. have a top hit working with him and how that could launch your career and make you a household name. Like, if an artist has $100,000, they should have Max Martin write them a song. I mean, I totally agree with you. I do feel like, I mean, I don't know that it, it's it's like that, where, like, if I had $100,000, I could just hire him. I feel like there's a, a certain bit of, like, he's selective about who he works with to keep his sound No, let's you know, let's pool our money together, you and me. We're going to contact Max <laughs> Martin. One song. Forget the podcast. We're going to become pop stars from one... Great. We'll be one-hit wonders. The two-person two boy band. Boy duo. We can do it. But if you think about this, I was reading about this and it dawned on me like he wrote some albums for Taylor Swift or Katy Perry or, you know, the Backstreet Boys were it was like seven, eight songs on the album. He produced one album. He wrote 12 of the songs on the album. That's a million too. Like well, yeah. for just just for the production on one album. So. I mean, I, I guess it does seem inexpensive per song, but when you consider he does several songs for many of these people, it's it's crazy. I mean, it's a crazy amount of money. You only got to have one hit to launch a career. Ask MC Hammer. That's true. <laughs> As I mentioned, he won ASCAP Songwriter of the Year Award in 1999, 2000, and 2001. But he also won it every year from 2011 through 2017. So it doesn't appear that he's done yet. <laughs> He was nominated for a Golden Globe in 2016 for working on Ellie Goulding's Love Me Like You Do, which was featured in Fifty Shades of Grey, and again in 2017 for Can't Stop the Feeling, which, as mentioned, was also nominated for an Academy Award, but, you know, they double-dipped and got, got a Golden Globe as well. Martin himself has been nominated for a Grammy Award 22 different times. In five of those, he won one. So he's got a nice little shelf in his house with five Grammys on it. <laughs> Not too shabby. Despite his decades-long career, not a single publicly available recording of Max Martin performing his own songs exists, which is mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, like, wild. What about of him performing with his glam rock band? I mean, maybe. I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> the the interesting... I mean, this was, like, just before cell phones, so it's not like everybody was around to film everything, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's probably no YouTube videos. Like... Yeah, if this was 30 years later, there'd be dozens of videos. But 
John Seabrook of The New Yorker mentioned, speaking of cell phones, mentioned that in the course of researching for his book about Martin, he only found one person who had a recording. And it was a record label employee who had a recording on his phone of Max Martin recording Baby One More Time in his own voice. And he goes on to mention that he sounds exactly like Britney Spears in the recording, which verifies a suggestion that I made that Martin makes the stars sing his songs how he wants them to be sang or finds specific stars <laughs> for the song and the sound he wants. And that's really cool. Like he knows exactly what the song is going to be like even before bringing the artist in. Yeah. One well, that's like I get super interested in this and like listen to certain songs that have really you know, are really well spoken of production wise, because even like pop music, which a lot of people, I guess, poo poo is simple or, or, you know, not, not high level artistry. Like there's sounds and chords and production techniques that are used that like, I don't even know how you think of, like, if you really pulled apart most of the pop songs on the radio, there would be sounds tracks in the recording that you'd be like, what the hell is that? That's not a drum. It's not a guitar. It's not a piano and it's not a vocal. But it's cool and it makes a sound sound great. And it's like some random sound that was run through a synth and then reversed and put with the reverb. And then it sounds real weird, but it, it makes these songs kind of have this personality. It's just got to be catchy enough to uh, get stuck in your head. And that's, I right. feel like that's how pop music gets popular. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, I, I think, the talent. Like we talked about, Jim Bridger had this natural talent for navigation. I think Max Martin's natural talent is catchiness not just music alone i think you can be good at music and not be good at finding catchy hooks he's just good at finding catchy hooks and making them it's got to be madness inside his brain like there's just got to be oh being a perfectionist like that yeah i just mean with all the different music and ideas and like the sounds he's probably hearing before he actually puts them together to produce the music and right. even talking about all the, the different artists that he works with like he has all their voices in his head and he knows what these lyrics are going to sound like before they come in to sing it like he he's got to be crazy but like a good kind of crazy and it obviously right. made him very successful <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so i have some quiz questions for you it's right. gonna be uh your favorite britney spears songs and the history of them (laughs) fantastic you ready i can't wait i'm actually excited for this quiz i feel like maybe i'll do all right all right we'll take a break and then we'll get into our quiz section do you like to bake do you like history Do you want to learn the history of the things you bake? Then you should listen to Hot Oven Time Machine, the podcast where we dive into the history of baking and try out recipes past and present. Hi, I'm Joseph, a master amateur baker. And I'm Monty, a master baker in training. Every episode, we go back in time to learn the history of baking. Then we bake and taste our favorite recipe of that baked good. We have some laughs and enjoy chit-chatting and learning about our favorite foods, all while exploring the rich history of baking and our time-traveling oven. Join us every other Wednesday to learn the history of all your favorite baked goods. (laughs) 
Well, as you're listening to all the music that's probably stuck in your head from this episode so far, hope you enjoyed our little throwback to the late 90s, early 2000s episode with all of our favorite songs growing up. But we're going to get into today's quiz section. We uh, like to end every episode with just a short three-question quiz to kind of test today's host to see how much he really studied his topic. And maybe you listening at home might know some of these and you can kind of give it some guesses as we go. You ready to jump right in? I am. These are all excited. obviously going to be uh, based around songs. There's nothing too technical about his history or, uh, I don't know, stuff around Max Martin. They're all going to be basically songs or artists that he worked with, things that came out of his career. So you should get okay. this. You'll be fine. <laughs> Question number one. This is one that you didn't mention on the episode, but what was Max Martin's first American hit? Oh my god. I can give you a hint. It was a Swedish band. The song was released in 1995, and it peaked at number 15 on the Billboard Hot Oof. 100. Oh no. It's one word. Oh my god, the band name is one word, isn't it? No. Oh, really? No, I don't know then. Yikes. So the song is Beautiful Life by the band Ace of Bass. Oh, Ace of Bass, yep. It is a very, I read about that, but I, very stereotypical only. 90s song. I had to, I had to look I it up just because I was curious, and it's like the album cover alone screams like either late 80s or early 90s. Yeah. The music is just <laughs> so much a 90s pop song. For question number two, you mentioned that Max Martin worked pretty closely with Britney Spears, and uh, she really enjoyed working with him. She kind of completely understood the sound that she wanted for her songs. So Martin is credited as a writer on how many of Britney Spears' songs? Oh, God. Um, 45. Wow, you went high. It was a high. I almost went with sixty, but <laughs> um, at least the ones that I could find, I got twenty-two. Okay. So he was credited as a writer on twenty-two Britney songs. Hit me, baby, one more time. <laughs> and your third question: You mentioned that since nineteen ninety-eight, Martin has written or co-written twenty-four Billboard Hot one hundred number one hit songs. Five of those songs debuted at number one. Can you name those five songs? Oh, my God. <laughs> or how many of them can you name? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to guess Can't Stop the Feeling. That's one of them. Because I feel like that was on the radio for like six years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even though it wasn't six years ago. That's fair. Four. Four years. Um I feel like it, one of Ariana Grande's. I, I don't know which one. No? Nope. Nope. Shake It Off, Taylor Swift. That was one of them. So you got two. Okay. All right. So you said five, huh? Yep. Two of I them feel were like it Britney didn't songs. Debut it. Oh, were they? Then Baby One More Time and... Nope. Dang. Oops, I did it again? Nope. Toxic. <laughs> no. The Britney songs, know. the Britney songs were three, which is the 
only one on this list that I can't recognize. I'm sure if yeah, I heard I, it, I but that. the name doesn't ring a bell to me. And hold it against me. Uh, and really, then, that debuted at number one. That surprises me. Uh, the last one of his five songs that debuted at number one was Part of Me by Katy Perry. Mm, that also seems odd, because I've never heard of that. Oh, you've heard it. it. If you heard it playing, you would know what uh, song it is. Okay. I have lots of listening to do. You do. And then I do have a bonus question Should have done for it before you. This. Oh, yes. <laughs> so this is just going to really test your memory, because this is something we talked about right before we jumped on the call to record this one. We came, or you came up with the episode title for this show, which is The King Midas of Pop Music, because everything he touched turned to gold. Now, Max Martin produced with Dennis Pop two B-side songs on an album entitled oh. King Midas. This oh, was no, you just said this. Released right in 1996 by a Swedish band. Can you name either the band or the name oh, hate you. of the B-side songs? <laughs> this is terrible. Oh my god. I can't. I can't. I I remember <laughs> saying I won't get it wrong. We I found it and I said I should make this part of the quiz and you were like, no, I'll remember it. <laughs> oh my god, that's terrible. No, I have no idea. So on the album King Midas, they produced the B-side songs, which are called Sexual Revolution, and it was just a mix yeah. and an edit of that song. And the band name was Army of Lovers. Dang it. Which well, I'm sure neither of us have heard of, and probably not very many of our listeners, unless we have some Swedish listeners. But thought that was really interesting that he produced on an album called King Midas and you yeah. happened to pick that for your episode title here. I just felt like it fit. Yeah, I mean, clearly. Guys of success. Things, turn to gold. <laughs> I'm embarrassed myself during that quiz. <laughs> that's okay. We typically do that on our episodes. Yeah, Neither funny. of us do really well on our quiz sections. No, we don't. Anybody who's good at trivia listening to this probably just screams. <laughs> <laughs> As always, we really appreciate you guys listening in and supporting us. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, suggestions, please feel free to hit us up at historiesbside at gmail.com or find us on social media. Uh, we talked briefly about it, and I think in addition to adding in the music like we did during this episode, we're also going to put together a short playlist of the songs we've mentioned. So be sure to look for that on Spotify as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Molino and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.